Okay, let's bow our heads and get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for the opportunity to be together. We ask that you would be the one heard today, that you would speak to our minds and to our hearts, that we could be more equipped to share the gospel with the world. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So, on our one thing um, theme, uh, I was invited to share about one word, the idea of communication. And so I thought, how do you start a, a topic that's going to be very practical, but tie it into the fact that we are all our ministries? And how does communication play into that? You know, I've heard people um, say, you know, if you want to be a communicator, you know, it's, it's important for people maybe like David Asherick or maybe Frank Fournier to be experts in communication, but, but if I'm working in an industry, at a ministry, or I'm um, you know, working in an office, or you know, however my capacity is, a ministry leader, is it really that important that I communicate well, and maybe even consider becoming a communications expert? And so uh, let's talk a little bit about that. And so as I thought about that, I thought, well, you know, what about the verse in John 1, verse 1? You know, um, the Apostle John was probably the closest human being to, the, to, to Christ while he was on earth as a disciple. And it says that in the beginning was the Word. You know, as inspiration was resting upon the Apostle John, he, he could have used any description, any human language to describe the creator of the universe. And what did he use to communicate that idea. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you have in the Greek this, this interchange of communication, of giving and receiving this, this community that focuses on communication. Interesting thought. Let's continue on. Um, in Romans, the Apostle Paul says this, he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? After all, isn't the goal of every one of our institutions to reach people for Christ? You know, here Paul is. He's been making this, this masterpiece of righteousness by faith, evident in the book of Romans. And he gets here and he says, it's all good, but what are they going to do if they can't hear it through a preacher? And so it underlines again the need of communication. We also find a few quotes in the spirit of prophecy. Here's one. Multitudes are perishing without one pitying look, one word or deed of sympathy. If that isn't the saddest thing, but it's the true uh, fact of many people throughout the world today... We also have this one. Many have fainted and become discouraged in a great struggle of life whom one word of kindly cheer and courage would have strengthened to overcome. Words are powerful things. So today we're going to look at what makes an idea succeed or fail. I'll tell you a story. But first I want to ask a question. What is it that makes one idea go viral, become a common knowledge versus an idea fail? Anybody have an idea? What, what are the, maybe some ingredients that make something succeed or fail as an idea? Communication, okay. So, so tell me a little bit more about communication when you say that. What do you, what do you mean by that? You can get your idea across to somebody else. Okay. So a great idea, not communicated well, might not become as popular as another idea. Um, Okay, so, so an, an idea that could fit in with someone's perceived need might be more well accepted than another idea. I think that's true. Um, so so there's, there's a story that goes around. The, there, was a, there was a man, and he was on a business trip, and he was certainly not a Seventh-day Adventist, and I would suggest probably not a Christian, and he is in a, his hotel, and he goes down to the little restaurant and bar, and he's at the bar, and he's getting something to drink, and a, a beautiful lady comes up, and she says, hey, you know... I've got a drink here, you're welcome to have one. And she gives him one, and they're visiting for a little while, and she walks away. And the next thing she, he knows, he wakes up in a hotel room in the bathtub full of ice. 
And there's a note and a phone, and it says, call 911 and don't move. So he gets his phone, and he calls 911, and they ask him, where are you? And he tells them, I'm sitting in a bathtub. I'm fi- it's filled with ice, and it says, don't move, call you. And they said, I think you've been had by a ring of organ harvesters that have spiked your drink and reach around your back, and is there a tube coming out of your back? He reaches around, and there's a tube coming out of his back, and he realizes at that moment that he has a significant problem, and of course indicates that he needs to have emergency services come to the scene. Now, this idea, in some form or another, has gone around the world many, many, many times. I have good news for you. It's not true. (laughs) But... If I ask you at the end of this retreat and probably at the end of next year to tell me that story, you could tell that story and almost all of its important details without ever hearing it again. Because even though it's a bad idea, even though it's a lie, it's communicated in a powerful and memorable way. And so what we want to look at today is not necessarily how we communicate, But what is it that we're actually communicating itself? You know, a lot of times you go someplace and they're going to have, you know, a speaking class. How do you speak? Are you standing up straight enough? Are you, you know, techniques, looking above people's heads so you don't get nervous? You know, you get all this stuff that people will tell you, but very little is said about the actual substance and the techniques for making what you say actually be remembered. You know, it's a tragedy, but I myself don't remember most of the sermons that I've heard in the last year. If you thought back, it would be interesting to sit down and take about 30 minutes and see how many of the sermons over the last year that you've heard, and some of you will have heard many, you would actually remember. And for some of us, it might even be worse than that. It might be how many of the sermons that we've preached we actually remember. (laughs) It's an interesting thought. And it comes based largely on something that we struggle with. It's called the curse of knowledge. You might say, well, I think knowledge is kind of a good thing. I mean, I could be dying of some disease that I could prevent because I have knowledge. And that is, of course, true. But there is a thing we call the curse of knowledge. And it goes like this. Um, What happens when you discover something? For example, one that we run into a lot is um, if you were a non-SDA and you come to the truth, and you learn about the state of the dead. You now have a different paradigm um, in your world, and oftentimes we rush back in state of the dead, the mark of the beast, these surprising um, discoveries that we have on the journey of of becoming a Seventh-day Adventist, these truths, and we go back to share them with the people that also don't know. The problem is we now know. And we forget what it was like to not know. And so we tell a story that doesn't have the details that we're playing in our mind but not communicating through our mouths. An example of this um, will be, we'll look at it here in a second, but here's a quote I found interesting. Um, it says here, talking about the curse of knowledge, there are actually only two ways to beat the curse of knowledge. One is to learn nothing. The other is to take your ideas and change them. And we'll look at this in the next illustration. Um, there's some scientists did a, a uh, study. Um, you know, I always wonder about scientists because they'll like study, you know, the life of cockroaches in an urban environment. And I'm thinking, you know, they're getting paid to do this stuff? But this is an interesting one. So they called it tapping. And so what they did is they brought, and we could do this, but I don't have time, but we could bring any one of you up, and we bring another one of you here, or maybe several of you, and I would have one of you sit and tap out the rhythm of a song on a piece of wood, a book, or something, and the other people would be listening. And what they did is they asked the people doing the tapping how many of your listeners do you think should be able to get what song you're tapping when you tap? What do you think the answer was? The answer actually was they thought, you know, there's a 50-50 chance that they would get uh, get what was being tapped. 
But what they found is actually somewhere between 2 and 3 out of 20 actually understood a single song of any of the ones that were tapped. And it led to great frustration for the people tapping because they're sitting there and they're tapping, you know, happy birthday to you. And the people are going, going, okay, you're great knocking, but, you know, I don't know what you're doing. And there was this frustration, this tension. And the reason was is when you do that, and you should try it, it's a great experiment, you're hearing happy birthday to you play in your mind because you know what you're trying to communicate. And so this is a challenge we face all of the time as we try to communicate the messages we have, especially because the messages we have are not common knowledge generally, right? We have, have health uh, um, knowledge that we want to share, but it's different. We don't understand it. We have truths that state of the dead, for example, when you know the truth about state of the dead, it's just it's plain and clear. But when you don't, but we forget how it was to not know. And you know, it gets even more challenging. I've got a question. How many people here um, are at least second or third generation Adventists? There's a bunch of you out there. I have bad news for you. You suffer an extraordinary case of the curse of knowledge. <laughs> I'm in that group. I don't know what it was ever like not to know what the sa- that the Sabbath was true. Now, is that a blessing? Of course, Apostle Paul talks about all the blessings he had of being a Jew, and he says, yeah, of course, it was an advantage. But it's not an advantage in communication. Because I don't ever know what it was like to not know about the Sabbath. I don't ever know what it was like to not know about the state of the dead. So I have to go through a process of communication that is different and even more uh, challenging than the person who may, at least at one point, have known what it was like to not know something. And so the good news is there are six steps to overcoming the curse of knowledge. Um, it was interesting. It's through a process I would call systematic creativity. Now, a lot of people, um, you know, most of you, and there are certainly some I'm sure that are here, that would be classified as, as you know, more task-oriented people. But then there's going to be some that we would call the creatives. Anybody know some people you would consider the creatives in the world? Maybe I should actually just ask the creatives to raise their hands. But, but the creatives, you know, with all respect to them, are different people generally. They, you know, they, we see them as you know, kind of out there. They're thinking about these ideas and, and visualizing things. And we, just, we don't get necessarily that as the common um, thread of, of most of the population doesn't necessarily understand that. And so we think, wow, creativity is this special thing. We go off and maybe we do a brainstorming session where we have free ideas that we're putting out and we're just coming up with ideas. Well, in Israel, they decided to study this in relation to advertising. So they took 200 um, ads and they analyzed them, 200 of the best ads that had ever been uh, published, most high regarded, um, well-performing ads. And then they took um, two groups of people they took one, well, actually, they took three. They took one group and they set, did, gave them no training and asked them to come up with ads um, for a variety of different organizations. And then they took a second group and they gave them training in creative thinking and they sent them out to come up with ads. And then they gave a third group the templates that they had discovered from the 200 ads that had performed the best. You would think that the creativity of, of the marketing minds would have come up with all kinds of different, different ideas and they would be really super successful and then you'd have the people you know, trying to figure that out. Well, what they found was actually that they all fell into six different categories, all 200 of the most successful ads, even though they were considered um, the most successful creative things to be, to be had. And so as they did this study, they found that the group that was given these six templates, significantly outperformed the ones who were trained in creative thinking. Because what they found was that every bad idea is bad in its own way. But every good idea, while different, usually has principles that follow its success. So the good news for the rest of us that are not in the creatives group is that we can actually use those six templates to make good advertising. And even better for us, because we may not be advertisers, we can use six steps to actually change the way that we communicate to avoid the curse of knowledge.
One of the things that is important, and there's six steps, and you may want to take notes of this because I think it will be a benefit to you and your communication, um, is you need to have simplicity in the way that you um, communicate. You know, my dad is a storyteller, and he, he is very into the details of a story. And sometimes, you know, 15 or 20 minutes into a story, you're going, please, please, can we have the short version of this story? Because there's so many details, and he enjoys the details, but sometimes by the end of the 20 or 30 minutes, I forgot what the story started out to be. Anybody experience that occasionally? Now, I'll be honest, I've, I've experienced that occasionally when someone shares with me their, their story or their, their pitch for their, for their ministry organization, and you end up you know, here, and you get this detail about when this happened, and you're going, you know, this doesn't matter for what you're trying to tell me. We struggle with having too much detail because oftentimes we think, wow, you know, for example, I'm going to go and get a donor to give to my organization. So I need to pile up all of the possible reasons that they could want to give to my organization. And if I just keep piling them up, eventually the weight of these good ideas and these facts and all this stuff will push them over the line to donating. We'll look at that a little bit more later. But in the process of simplification, there's a, there is a principle we call discovering the CI. And that CI stands for commander's intent. In the military, if you're going to start um, a military action or you have a, a contingency made for a military action, they will have at the top of the document, what is the commander's intent? And the idea is that you need to know why are we doing what we're doing? You know, you're going to have a vast variety of people moving in different things to bring supplies and to bring medical equipment and to do all the things that it's going to take to have a successful military campaign. But all of them need to know, at the end of the day, why are we doing what we're doing? Because you can plan the best plan, and we actually saw this in France in uh, the beginning of the Second World War. There was a fantastic plan for dealing with an invasion of France. The problem was it didn't survive contact with the enemy. And every plan is that way. But if you know what the commander's intent is, if you know at the, at the end of the day, I'm supposed to do this, but the outcome is supposed to be this, if the enemy changes the way he responds, you don't expect something, you can readjust in the field to still reach the commander's intent. And I think sometimes we lose focus on what is it for our organization that is the real bottom line to what needs to take place. And you'll see some questions that play into that. If we do nothing else during tomorrow's mission, we must do what? How would that work for your organization if you, at the beginning of each week, had a meeting and you asked this question of your organization? What do we have to do if we don't do anything else to reach that commander's intent. And if you don't have commander's intent, if you don't have a very clear, succinct um, outcome that you're trying to reach, then you're going to have a very hard time answering this question, and you'll have a very hard time not failing in your mission as an organization. Another question that should help you in discovering your commander's intent would be, what is the single most important thing that we must do tomorrow Anybody have an idea? Think about your organization as you ask, ask these questions. Do you know what that is? It's, a, it's an important thing to know if you don't. The French aviator and author, and I will butcher his French name, but um, once offered a definite uh, offering of engineering elegance, and he says this. He says, a designer knows he has achieved perfection not when there is nothing left to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. It's not the way we think very often. And, like Frank said, a designer of simple ideas should aspire to the same goal, knowing how much can be wrung out of an idea before it begins to lose its essence. Um, in the United States, during the presidential campaigns of, uh, for the first time for Bill Clinton, um, the, the man had, of course, a, a, an abundance of, of personal baggage. He was also very um, 
detail-oriented in relation to policies and all this stuff, and he wanted to run uh, on the idea of balancing the budget. And coming from uh, his position in the, in the field of candidates, uh, he felt like that was something he really wanted to push. And, and his advisors told him, no, don't talk about it and stay out of it. And, and he really wanted to know why. Because he's like, look, I've been talking about this idea before. Ross Perot, the other candidate that got in, that really owned that part of the field, got in. And he wanted to have an argument. He wanted to debate the issue out on the idea of balancing the budget. And his advisors put on the whiteboard in their campaign office one line. It said, it's the economy stupid. And their point was, that's it. We're not going to... Anything that we communicate, our commander's intent, no matter whether you're a call worker in the office, whether you're Bill Clinton on the stump speech, you're going to talk about the economy and, and its condition. It was very clear. It simplified his message. It tied him down. He didn't get to talk about some of the things he wanted to. But his outcome was the, commi the communication of that idea was clear, and he, of course, won the election uh, fairly handily. In finding your core idea, another important factor to consider is the idea that journalists call the inverted pyramid. Anybody familiar with the idea of an inverted pyramid? There's a couple of, I see maybe three hands. So the idea uh, was actually invented during the Civil War. And, and journalists would be out on the battlefield here in the United States. And the military and journalists at the time used the same uh, transmission lines. And so if you're a journalist and you want to get your story through, you have second access to the journalistic lines to get your stories back to your editors. And so what they did is they began to write their stories with the most important details at the beginning. Basically, when you read the story, if you read the first paragraph, you would know what the story was about. Because there was a good chance that while their article was going down, the military was going to get preference and cut off the story. And if you didn't write it this way, guess what would happen? Well, there were many men at this location and no story, and you would lose out. So they put the, the, the capsulation of it at the very front. This is actually a very effective um, tool, and it's actually used today as well, because you can shorten or lengthen a story by cutting off the ends of the story without affecting the, uh, the effectiveness of the story from the top. And so I would encourage, as you think about simplicity of your, of your communication, to think about putting the details right in the front end. It says here, I've always been a believer that if I got two hours in which to write a story, the best investment I can make is to spend the first hour and 45 minutes getting a good lead, getting that first paragraph, the top of that inverted pyramid, getting it ready and then everything else will follow easily because you won't get bogged down in the details of the rest of the story that may or may not matter for your story. We talked about that. If you or your organization could only do one thing, what would it be? Now, that's a hard question, right? How many of your organizations um, only do one thing? Everyone who does just one thing at your organization, your organization only has one branch, would raise your hand. Not a single one. I, see, I thought I'd have a better chance of seeing at least somebody who just did one thing at their ministry. But we don't. But what would happen? What, what if you had to reduce your whole organization to doing one thing? What would that one thing be? I think that would be a very effective exercise for you and your team to consider because it would help you to understand what is the core, what is the very foundational piece that I'm trying to accomplish in my ministry through the Lord's calling, and making sure that we don't lose that one thing in the middle of that busyness that we all have. What is the one message you must communicate to help people understand your organization's purpose and why it needs their help to su succeed? Why do you exist? What's the one message that you can send that will communicate that? I want to give you an example of uh, the next piece of this six-part solution to the idea of um, the curse of knowledge. The first one was to have a simple message. The second one is called unexpectedness. 
We'll see an example of this here today. I don't think I've got audio on. With features like remote control sliding rear doors, 150 cable channels, a full sky view roof, temperature controlled cup holders, and a six point navigation system. It's a minivan for families on the go. So, let's talk about that a little bit. What was the, uh, we can turn down the audio for now, I, I'll have another video in a little bit, but um, what did you see in there that was what you would normally expect? Sure, of course, normal car commercial, all the details, very, very feature rich, right? All this stuff, you know, trying to give you a warm feeling, the family in the van, the whole thing, and then what happens? Now, can you remember that? Of course you can. Why? It was a great car ad, right? That was the reason you remember it, right? Because there was a surprise. They led you down this path that you expected. Bam! And something happens that you're not expecting. One of the things that you can do as you communicate your story, as you tell uh, stories, is to think and communicate ones where something happens that begins to sound like something that is normal, that you would, the mind would naturally walk down the steps, and then when something unexpected happens, it helps engage the mind so that you hear what's being said. Because we can tell a simple message, but we need to catch people's attention in a world that's filled with things like Twitter and Facebook and all the, the noise that people are hearing. How do you get the attention of people. And so I would suggest that you use unexpectedness as you tell your stories. Now you can't make every story. I'm not suggesting anybody go and, and fictionalize their, their materials, not at all. But how you communicate the details and what details you even communicate of a story can allow you the ability to tell a story that's unexpected. I'm going to tell you another story that I heard. I heard this story one time and I believe that I have the, all of the major components uh, intact for this story. And you may have heard it, you may not have heard it, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Jim Ayers is the one who first shared it, and he is a master storyteller, and it's Max's story. So Max was a bad guy. This guy, he was in trouble for murder, he was in trouble for th uh, thievery, for drugs, and he was in prison in a country in Central America. And um, while he was there, him and his, several of his buddies had gotten busted, and you know, he was not enjoying the situation, and he noticed that people who went to church on Sunday didn't have to go to work. So Max was a bad guy, but he was also a lazy guy, and he decided he would go to church on Sunday because he didn't have to work on Sunday that way. And then he noticed that there was a group of people who went to church on Saturday, and they didn't have to work either, and Max was still a bad guy, and he was still lazy, and so he would go every Sunday and every Saturday to church, and he went, and he went, and pretty soon, a few weeks later, Max and his friends broke out of prison, and they escaped, and they returned to the mountains um, where they had been doing their drug business in the past. And uh, when they arrived, they had a meeting of all the bad drug dealer guys, and they said, you know, how are we going to avoid ending up back in prison where we are bored to death and have to work and then sit in church services all the time? And so they had this discussion, and Max said, I know I've got the idea. And his genius idea was, let's build a church to front as our organization for our drug dealing here in Central America. And he's like, it's, it's perfect. You know, people are not going to even suspect that this church has a cave under it and that we're dealing drugs and guns under the church. And so his friends looked at him and they said, you know, Max, prison has not been good for you. You are a dumb guy. And they said, he's like, what do you mean? He goes, because people come to church. And of course, Latin America is very religious and Sunday churches are attended very well. And he goes, hmm, that's a good point because I really don't want people coming to the church because then... They might find out that we're doing drugs under the church. And so he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he goes, I've got the perfect idea. We're going to build a Seventh-day Adventist church in the mountains because, you know, there aren't many people who go to Seventh-day Adventist churches, at least not where I live. And so I'll have a church. It'll be a perfect cover, and no one will know. And so Max begins 
building this church, and they dig their cave, and they have their drugs, and they're like, but, you know, we need to make this legitimate. And so him and his friends go to a nearby village, and they steal a sign from in front, not a nearby village, a distant village. They steal the sign from in front of the church that says, Seventh-day Adventist, the three angels, put it up in front of the church. I mean, it's totally legit, but, of course, nobody comes. And so it's working fine for them. And then one day, way down in the valley near the mountains, there were some uh, Adventist kids hiking around, and they heard that there was an Adventist church in the area. And they said, man, praise the Lord, we're going to take the you know, hour and a half hike up into the mountains and we're going to go to church because they were going to an evangelical school in the area. And they went up there and as they went to the school, they knocked on the door, or the church, they knocked on the door and nobody answered. And they thought, that's strange, it's Sabbath morning. And finally Max comes out gruffly, oh, what do you want? He's not used to people coming to church, you know. And they said, well, we're here for church. And he's like, hmm, I wasn't planning on that part. So he's like, well, um, okay, but uh, why don't you do church? And so he wasn't sure what to do because he hadn't paid any attention when he was in prison. And so they said, okay, sure. So they came in and they began to, to, to share and do Sabbath school and, and do church. And they liked it. And so they, every Sabbath they were coming back. And he thought, man, this is even better than I thought because these kids, they don't have any idea. They don't know that I'm selling drugs out of the cave underneath here. And now it even looks like a real church. It's got people coming and it's total perfect cover. And so... Everything was fine until one day the evangelical director of the school down in the valley decided he was going to lock all of these kids in to, on Sabbath so they wouldn't be going to the Adventist church on Sabbath. And so Max woke up in the morning and the kids never showed up. He asked around his drug dealer friends and he got word that this guy down in the valley was holding all of these kids hostage on Sabbath. And so he got his guns from under, his, under the church and he went down into the village. <laughs> mowing down the banana plants as he comes into town, blows the lock off the school door, and he goes in there and he grabs the director of the school, puts him up against a wall, puts the gun in his face and says, you've got a choice. You can either let my congregation come (laughs) or I'll meet you in hell later. And so the guy, you know, relented and let them come. And from that point on, the congregation came. And one day they came to Max and they said, Max, you know, we need to have a... Uh, an evangelistic series. And so that's a great idea. What's that? And you go, well, we need to have somebody come. And they preach and people come. And he goes, okay. So they called the local conference evangelist and said, hey, we want you to come to evangelistic series here. And they said, you're nuts. No, I'm not coming. It's a very dangerous part of the world. There's drug dealers that live there. <laughs> they tried to explain, but you know, he was not going to have any of it. And so after several times, he, uh, they finally convinced him, you know, gave him a guilt trip about how the Lord was going to protect him and all this stuff. And Max and his friends have agreed to be security. <laughs> and so they have the evangelistic series, and people come, and they're baptized. And, and on the last day, the last appeal, Max gives his heart to Christ. And he agrees to change his business. And uh, they ask him, why did you wait to the last day? And he said, well, because I knew that if I became a Christian, my life would need to change. And I was afraid as a guard I'd have to kill someone. So I didn't want to do that before I became a Christian. So, as an example of a story, what is it about that story that will make it so that you can tell that story in your Sabbath school department or at church six months from now? Yeah. Do you expect a drug dealer, I mean, a drug dealer having a church as a, as a cover is, is unique, right? It's kind of unexpected. But it's even more ex- unexpected to have him go down and, and demand his congregation be freed, Right? So there's a series of surprising things in this true story about the Lord's miraculous intervention in building churches in Latin America. So think about this. That is the, now you may not have a story quite that fantastic, okay? But the idea of finding ways to tell a story where there is something that's out of the ordinary is what helps people fix it in their minds. Uh, an example of that we have here actually with us today, and you'll actually see this again, I think, but Asian Aid is here with us, and they've done a nice um, promotion for their ministry. I want to share it with you because I think it also shows the idea of unexpected in a different way, certainly than Max, uh, certainly than the car ad, but it incorporates that into sharing their message. We do need audio. See you tonight. I'm 
every morning. Sponsor a child with Asian A. <laughs> okay. We can take the audio back down. Thank you very much. Um, did you notice anything in there that's surprising? Yeah, there's a teleporter in their door, right? So, so you're expecting, you know, they're getting ready for school. You, you know, you know Sean and his family. But there's an extra bag, and then you the door, and you see, and it paints a picture with with a visual demonstration that not only is surprising, but that tells the story. Think about ways that you can use your promotional materials, your message, in a surprising way, to tell the story that makes a difference. Um, the next piece of your six ways to get rid of um, the curse of knowledge is the idea of foxes and grapes. Now, most people probably know the story, but uh, the fable is told that there was a fox and he's walking through a, a beautiful vineyard and he sees you know, an exceptional cluster of grapes, sweet, delicious looking grapes. And he jumps and he jumps and he jumps to try to get this grape cluster, but it's extra high and he fails. And after a while, he quits and he walks off and he holds his nose high and he says, well, they were probably sour anyway. And this story has lasted probably for over 2,000 years, um, this fable of the fox and grapes. Now, is it talking about fox, like the little red animal, and grapes? Is that the, the point of the story? What's it talking about? It's a, it's a, it's a commentary on psychology, right? You can despise something you have little knowledge of. You can, you can say, well, you know, I can discount that as something that I shouldn't have because I can't have it. And so it tells this story. Well, it uses things that you can understand. You know, trying to go into psychology of the human mind can be very intangible. But all of us know what this is, and all of us know what that is. And when you paint this interaction between these real things that we actually know about, you gain a story that's, remember, that's memorable, that, that, that seems realistic, that communicates a story that's legitimate and, and good. Another example of this would have been the Nature Conservancy. Um, it's an organization that, that protects and preserves land, and they really have a focus in California. And one of the things that they did for years and years was they would go and they would get um, people to donate money, and that money would buy land to protect it. And they called it... Um, bucks for acres. And it was fairly straightforward. People like to give money to something that then there's a correspondent clear connection to. But one day they did their research and they realized that they wanted to protect critical wilderness in California and that wilderness was somewhere between 40 and 10 percent depending on how critically you looked at the, the numbers of California. Now do you think the Nature Conservancy was going to be able to go and sell to their constituents we need you to donate money so we can buy 40% of California. Like, sure, yeah, my $5 million is really going to make a difference, right? No. And so instead of being able to say, hey, 50 bucks is going to buy you, you know, X number of amount of land or square feet of land, there was this disconnect. But they felt they still needed to um, pursue some of that uh, conservation. So they decided, well, we'll get easements. We won't actually buy the land, but we'll pay for easements that will protect the land. But you know, it's less fun to buy an easement than it is to buy a land that you can actually go and walk on and, and see as a park and stuff. And so they had this disconnect in their message. And so pretty soon they decided, well, I know what we'll do. And they began to package the land that they were going to conserve into wilderness areas. Now, were these areas wildernesses on the government scale? No, they weren't. Mount Hermon Wilderness, for example, was a series of brown hills that was important uh, to the uh, environment in the area, but it was not very beautiful and not very attractive and nobody had a name for it. Well, they found a mountain there and they called it the Mount Hermon Wilderness. And people were very active in, in um, funding the saving of the Mount Hermon Wilderness. Now, you know why? It was tangible. So they had about, I don't know, 50 or, uh, or so areas that they were able to identify by name that were attainable areas that could be protected. And so they found that making it concrete, something people could actually get a grasp of, helped um, in that process. Something that might be a little closer to home, uh, we have the idea of the unreached. 
This is the current number that I found approximately for the number of people who have never been reached by the gospel in any way. Seven billion people. It's a lot of people. Anybody have an idea what seven billion looks like? Seems insurmountable. And that's just the people who have not been reached by the message that Christ even exists. I'm not talking about the church's reach. Um, and, and the answer, of course, is how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? But you have to paint that picture for people. And here's an example of one of our ministries that has done this kind of a concept. How do you get people to pay for building an orchard? How do you make it tangible? One tree at a time. You'll see here what they've done is they've broken it down. And so if you go to donors and you ask them, hey, would you sponsor a tree? Is that fairly tangible? Is that concrete idea that someone can understand? Of course it is. We have other ministries that are doing that as well. Asian AIDS student sponsorship breaks down this mass of people into, a, into people who actually can be identified. The next one um, is the idea of credibility. Now, something that we have to watch out for is the, the blessing and the curse of the Internet. Now, is there a lot of good information accessible via the Internet? Is there a lot of bad information accessible via the Internet? If you come to someone, especially with an idea on alternative medicine, and you say, I found it on the Internet, you know what you just did to your credibility? It's gone. Now, you might have researched it on the Internet. Don't mention it, because you ruin your credibility. And this is an interesting example, not specific to the Internet, but to uh, an instance related to credibility. Um, For years, people had been dealing with ulcers, variety of ideas of why they, they came uh, into existence. And one day, Barry Marshall was doing research, and he was not even a doctor yet. He was still an undergraduate, and he was just working. And he realized that all these people who had um, these ulcers had the H. phylora bacteria And he thought, hmm. And as they began to look at it, him and a friend, they came to the conclusion that this type of ulcer was caused by this bacteria. They told the scientific community, and they were laughed off the planet. They said, bacteria in the intestine. The reason these people are getting that is the acid is eating through the sidewalls of their intestines and their stomachs. And how is a bacteria going to survive in that acidic environment and they were just totally scorned he didn't come from one of the prestigious research universities it seemed less proven than they expected and so for years he tried and tried to get an audience nobody would publish him nobody would hear of it and so one day he called his friends and some news uh, folks together and he went to his lab and he got a jar full of this bacteria and he drank it in front of them and in a few days he had the ulcer. And they tested him, and he cured himself using the, the regimen he had, he had designed. And a few years later, you know what? He rece- him and his co-workers received the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> you know what the problem was? It was just as true the day they laughed at him. He had no credibility. Sometimes some of the things we have don't seem to have very much credibility. But how do we deal with that? What did he use to build credibility? He used his own experience, but more importantly than his own experience, he had a testimonial of someone who actually had it and was actually cured. Any ideas how we might use that? Kind of a concept? This is the concept of the anti-authority. Now, um, it's most common, like... in the U.S., at least, cereal boxes will oftentimes have sports figures or these you know, famous singers or people on cereal boxes or on products or Nike shoes is a classic example, right? And they'll have someone famous who says they like a product, whether they even wear it or not. They show them wearing it. And because they like it, other people will like it because they lend their credibility to this idea, right? Well... We have another way that we can actually get into this, and that is what we call anti-authority. And that is, you get somebody who's had an experience with the actual thing, and then they've experienced an improvement, 
and you have them share their personal experience because how do you argue with someone who's telling you what happened to them? And this is an example where Wildwoods used this. Um, they've done uh, using testimonials to build the credibility of a program that's using alternative medicine that is not necessarily always widely accepted by a doctor endorsing it or something of that nature always. So you can use testimonials to create credibility. And that's a way that's affordable to do that. Uh, the next one would be um, the emotions, uh, engaging the emotions in the process of communication. And that is, uh, here's an example. Mother Teresa once said, if I look at the mass, all the people in India, I'll never act. But if I look at the one, I will. Um, interesting study was done on giving. And they, they gave a random group of people a survey on a totally unrelated topic. And then they agreed that they would pay them $5 at the end of this uh, survey. The people took the survey, got their $5, and then they asked in two different groups a question about a pitch to give to an organization, a nonprofit organization. And the first one, they listed the facts about Africa, the facts about, okay, you know, there's all these people, here's the people that are starving, here's the people dying of disease. They gave all the, the reasons you should give to this cause to help people in Africa. And then they had another one where they had a girl in Africa telling her story and what, um, they, they painted the picture of what would happen for her personally as an individual if someone gave. What do you think resulted in the most giving? Yeah. The people that, that just listed the facts, it was a big cause. People didn't really get engaged with it, but the story of the girl got twice as much donation for the, from the people as, as the other story had given. Now, I've seen a lot of statistics used in our pitches to people to give. Now, there's place for statistics, but I think this will be actually surprising. They did another test. They took people and they gave them the statistics and then they told them the story of the girl. You know what happened? This is what happened. Once people were exposed to the facts of the mass, they were less likely, even after being approached by the individual story, to give. You need to be careful how you organize your communication because you may actually inoculate people from giving you um, funds or hearing your story because when the mind changes to an analytical um, mindset, it changes the appeal of your story. So think about that in uh, your communication as well. And as we're wrapping up, we have an opportunity to reverse the, cure, uh, the curse of knowledge. Here's what it is. When we tell a story, we do something very different. With the curse of knowledge, we talked about it, we tell an idea and it leaves gaps because we, you know, we hear it playing in our mind, so we leave things out, and the listener doesn't have anything to fill it in. In our mind, we know what's supposed to be heard, but the people only hear what we actually communicate. What does a story do for people? It's really interesting. They, they've done studies, and what they have found is that stories do this. With the proper storytelling, we provide a framework that the hearer can fill in from their own common experience. Through this, they experience the idea in a practical way psychologically. And the way that works is when you tell a story that's done properly. When you, Think about the, the, the message of Christ. Oftentimes, um, for example, the, sto the story of the Good Samaritan. What does Christ do? He tells a story, and he tells a story over and over again in his parables that people can relate to. It's something that they, they buy into. It's something that they've experienced because when you tell the details, when you give people the framework, they can see the guy laying there bleeding, and they can watch the guy walking by, and, and it has all of this stuff. People actually experience as if they were there with you the stories you tell when you tell them well. We can give people knowledge. We can give them facts. But they have no experience. When we tell a story, we actually bring them there with us. And it actually is that way. Psychologically, it has an impact as if they were actually there.
amazing thing that the mind has, and it's powerful in the process of telling stories. So here is the list. It's a modified spelling of success. It's a way to remember how to communicate more effectively. Use simple ideas, the unexpected, make them concrete, incredible, emotional, and use stories to help people actually not only hear you, but experience what you've communicated as well. Um, you can test the six steps on the Good Samaritan story, and I'd encourage you to do that maybe tomorrow sometime to look at how the Samaritan story is actually used in relation to these six steps. It's very fascinating um, how Christ uses these steps in his communication as the master communicator. And if you would like to learn more, uh, those ideas have largely come from Made to Stick. I don't know if any of you have read the book. Um, if you haven't, you need to buy the book when you get home or before you get home via Amazon so that it's there when you get home. Um, we barely scratched the surface, but it's a powerful study on why ideas live or survive. And that matters to us because think about it. Uh, in Spirit of Prophecy, there's this statement that hanging on the, Christ, on, hanging on the cross, Christ was the gospel. We have an amazing thing to communicate. We need to be experts as much as possible in communicating so that the message of the gospel sticks in the minds of others. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.